I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty and to impress him he takes on his multi-armed form and says, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Two Peas on a Podcast. Gerald is here with you. J. Nicholas Haskins, how are you? Uh, welcome to Two Dogs on an Indie. That's uh, that's that's the two rubber hot dogs that were strangling Indiana Jones and Indiana Jones what? and the Dial of Destiny. The, the CGI looks so bad, Gerald. It looks so bad that it looks oh, like the noose God. is made out of hot dogs. I kid you not, it's that bad. Dial of Death. I'd say I don't not get good. that joke because I haven't I haven't seen it yet, but I, I I've heard that it's not the best thing in the world. But yeah, you'll see two hot dogs. Wow, you'll see, baby, you'll see. So yeah, uh, hey, how, hi everybody, hi, hey G, <laughs> hello, up, hello, <laughs> I'm good, man. Welcome to the. This is the peas. We're we're the peas. Hello, peas. So now we're the peas. I love when you actually call us by the name of, of the show. That's how I know it's going to be a good episode. I have been pumped to talk about this movie by Christopher Nolan. Oppenheimer is the review this week. Uh, we had Barbie last week, Nick. Oppenheimer this week. Man, talk about talk about juxtaposition. Am I right? But I want to ask you real quick before we get into the you know rigmarole of the show. What did you think of this whole Barbenheimer phenomenon, man? I mean, this was crazy, right? What I think is great is think about all the discussions that had taken place on social media. I know you've been exposed to this kind of stuff for ages. All the different discussions that you saw because the Flash bombed, Indie bombed. You saw all these different movies, these massive, huge budget blockbusters that really failed to resonate and kind of capture an audience at the theater. And everybody was saying cinema's dead, cinema's dead. Nobody wants to go to the theater anymore. Barbenheimer just proved you wrong. People Damn will right. show up to the cinema, but you gotta make you gotta make it something special. You gotta make it something worth their while. You gotta make it something important to them. And I really, really think that this like double feature, if if you want to call it that, if you if you saw them back to back or not or whatever, I really think that these were two highly hyped movies, both. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, depending score aside, we haven't discussed our score yet, but like craftsmanship alone, like in terms of the craftsmanship of making them top notch, you know, I mean, this raises the bar. I think this raises the definition of what a summer blockbuster should be. People are getting tired of these franchise movies. People are getting tired of superhero movies. They're getting tired of these endless franchise features. I mean, Mission Impossible didn't even perform quite as well as they wanted it to. You yeah, know, that's. That's what's interesting to me when I pulled, by the way, Barbenheimer, this kind of internet grassroots phenomenon that started happening about six months to a year ago and culminated with the release of these movies this weekend has its own Wikipedia page, which That's I find amazing. fascinating. But anyway, I'm looking at that right now and we're talking the fourth largest opening on a weekend in box office history mm -hmm. and what's interesting to your point is the other three are all these kind of like you know franchises that everybody knows and these big you know avengers endgame infinity war and the force awakens a star wars film 
So they're all these huge kind of like regurgitated. They're the same, the CGI, all this stuff. And then you have Barbie and Oppenheimer, two movies that are anything but these big comic book superhero films. I mean, I don't want to get into the Oppenheimer discussion quite yet, but I think it's fascinating. And I think it's awesome how the fans and like moviegoers really did this because it was really a word of mouth kind of like, I can remember people joking about it like a year ago when they yeah. announced the release dates with <laughs> Christopher Nolan's epic up against this like pink Barbie dream house fictionalized, you know, reality that we saw last week. I mean, just so great that two movies like this from, from filmmakers like Nolan and Greta Gerwig are what we're sitting here talking about and not, you know, star Wars and Avengers. You know what I mean? It's just, it's really, really cool. I think it's, it's, yeah. I, I'm glad to have lived through it. It's one of those things as a movie fan that you'll remember for a long, long time. Yeah. And I mean, I really, really enjoy, like, I mean, just to think of the picks that you mentioned there, I mean, the force awakens was the first theatrical star Wars in what, 15 years, 10 years, something like that. Can't remember exactly the, t well, Revenge of the Sith would have been like 2005 or so. But anyway, like it was the sequel was trilogy. It was bringing yeah. back legacy characters from the original trilogy and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, that makes sense that that was as hyped as it was. And then, I mean, of course, you had Infinity War and Endgame, which was the culmination of like over 10 years of like all that storytelling and stuff that they did in the MCU. So that also makes makes a lot of sense to me. But like I said, I, th I think it makes complete sense to, to this degree as well. And I think it also proved that studios can open to massive blockbusters against each other and both of them can still perform really 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 well both of them suffered like historically low drops like like neither one of them dropped oh, very yeah. far at all into their second weekend like they're both performing still really 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 well which is mm -hmm. just something to be said about like how hungry movie audiences are for these type of movies they just don't want to have any more of this like just nonsense spoon fed to them. I, I I just think people are getting tired of legacy sequels, which, you know, the star Wars movies were, and like, we've seen a lot of that with a lot of different franchises and stuff. I think people are tired of superhero movies. They're tired of just endless CGI noise getting thrown at the screen. We know now how often we've seen and heard about how poorly and over how poorly treated and how overworked the visual mm -hmm. effects industry is. And so I think that, I think that, you know, two original movies like these, I mean, obviously Barbie's based on an existing IP and Nolan is Nolan. So Nolan is bringing his box office power, you know, his, his stamp on it. I mean, Nolan is somebody who produces like, I mean, the, I haven't seen Tenet yet, but I mean, obviously he tried to open that like three months after like the pandemic started and like nobody was going to theaters to see that nonsense. So that did not perform well. But I mean, other than that, like Nolan has proven time and time again that he can open a massive blockbuster. This one, this one doesn't have Batman in it, you know, or anything like that, but it's still open to massive, massive success. And you think about that, you contextualize that for a second as well. This is a three hour biopic. There is no action in this film, really. This is just three straight hours of dialogue about nuclear <clears throat> physics, quantum mechanics, and like right. politics. Three hours, right. and it is this highly regarded by both audiences and critics alike. I mean, gee, that I mean like audiences well, we'll see. want movies like these. They really, really do. Like, give them more of this kind of original stuff. I mean, we'll see. I mean, we've got what Blue Beetle later this month. We've got the Marvels later this year. Mm -hmm. But man, superhero movies are just on their way out. Like they 
I, I'm interested to see still what the landscape's going to look like come 2025 when yeah. Gunn's DCU like resurges or like relaunches or whatever with Superman Legacy. I'm really interested to see if that's going to either be like a second wind for the superhero or if it's going to be just long dead by then. It's not going to happen anytime soon, but probably not in my lifetime. But I think they just need to just stop. <laughs> for like 10 years just don't make anything superhero for like 10 years and they get a filmmaker super regard super well regarded super well respected come back in you know release something and kind of start a new franchise if you will i mean that's not going to happen but it's just like you said we just need a break as a society now before we get into our Oppenheimer discussion it's one big question time nick we start every episode before we get into the review with asking each other one big question that could somewhat be inspired by the movie we're discussing. And as I said, it's Oppenheimer tonight. Nick, I now I have one that's kind of super, super deep oh, or I man. could go kind of fun. Do you want to you want me to go deep or do you want me to go fun? We're going to be deep like the whole rest All of right. the time we're talking about this movie. So, I mean, you either mm. want to stay totally consistent throughout this episode or you want to throw me a curveball. So I'm going to ask you, I'm, I'm going to go first because I don't really even know how to phrase this. This is gonna, like right. I said, this is dark. This is deep and dark. Okay, man. My one, my one big question for you, and this is just, I'm speaking in generalities here. I'll phrase this the best way I can. Would you kill one person if you knew you were saving 100 lives by doing so? 100 people like it's just it's that 100 people now what okay it's so that simple if you don't kill this person whoever person a is then 100 mm. other people that you don't know are gonna die man and you don't know this person either the person that you have to kill is a stranger the hunt what are the circumstances i like i gotta know more i gotta I know circumstances. Get into that. i can't get into that i gotta keep it it's so tough for me because see, I'm 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 gonna sit here and try to weigh it morally and like try to justify yeah. like the 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 action of the action of doing so, or or something like that. Because if all you're given contextually is this one person's gonna kill these 100 people, you don't know why. You don't know why. Like it could be no. it. This could it be like simple. this could be like one person has caught like a gang of the 100 most evil and diabolical like serial killers and rapists or whatever, and something like that. Like you could really contextualize that question in any way to justify I any know. answer. I'm gonna say no because I abhor violence. Like yeah. period. I don't think I don't think violence solves anything. I just don't think I could do it either. I, I'm just going to say, I'm just going to say no. And, and plus like, we'll get into it when we get more into the Oppenheimer discussion, but you know, there's a very heavy sub thread that runs through this film. Oh yeah. Of no, the very we'll real to. struggle that Oppenheimer went through later in his life after mm -hmm. developing the bomb of, you know, the arms race and like, you know, his fear of, you know, nuclear Armageddon and, and like feeling like he had blood on his hands from the dropping of the bombs on, uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So yeah, we'll get there. You know, I I just I I could not I couldn't no because I I I would I would have that blood on my hands and even if even if you can feel that it's morally justifiable like that's going to haunt you. You're going to carry that with you for the rest of your life. I've I never know. killed anybody. You know, I can't attest to what that's like, but you know, I have to believe that it fundamentally changes you as a person. For sure, for sure. Well, I agree with you. I wouldn't be able to do it either. So that, that, that's uh, I applaud your answer there. It, it would be tough, but I wouldn't be able to do it either. 
Nick, what's your one big question for me, man? I, I think I'm ready. Is yours deep as well? I'm going to steal one of our listener questions from last week where they asked what we would like to see Greta Gerwig tackle next. Hmm. And after seeing this, we've seen Nolan take on superheroes. We've seen Nolan do mind-bending psychological thrillers. We've seen him take on biopics. We've seen him take on war movies with things like Dunkirk. Where does he go next? And sub-question, if 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 you're looking for the director for the next James Bond movie, why are you not putting him at the top of your list? I think he probably is at the top of the list. I mean, I'm not going to use James Bond as my answer because I feel like that's been thrown around a lot from. Oh, I mean, people have asked him directly about it. <laughs> He's been like, yeah, I fucking love those movies. I'd do but that. He'd, yeah, and he'd so, love to. Yeah, he'd love to. Yeah. So. I'll say kind of in keeping with what I think he's really, really good at. I'm not going to say horror, which I mean, I would love that. Let's be honest, but I'm not going to say that. Some people could argue Oppenheimer is a bit of a horror, but um, I'll say just kind of like a straight action movie, you know, where it's all practical effects, you know, car chases, kind of like the Mission Impossible type films, but like done through a Christopher Nolan lens, you know, and not attached to any IP. Just like, yeah, I don't know, you could pick any plot, like these two brothers rob a bank and it's the story of them being on the run, you know, and they're being chased by rangers or whatever. I mean, just like some generic kind of action plot, but done by Christopher Nolan with no CGI, all practicality. And I just feel like he would just turn an ordinary film, I guess is what I'm saying, into like really extraordinary. And I think he does that a lot in his career. I mean, you look at movies like, Batman I mean of course Batman he's got that I mean lore of Batman so that's going to bring people to the theater regardless of who's in the director's chair but he still brought his kind of twang to those movies yeah yeah. I remember seeing that 18 wheeler flip over in the dark night in IMAX and I was a fucking changed person after that like I was like oh my god this is the greatest thing I've ever seen on a movie screen before so Nolan is one of the goats and I just just kind of that like ordinary kind of like chase action movie i feel like he would really do something special with so that'll be my answer and i and i think to 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 your point there about batman and about james bond uh, nolan's already made a james bond movie it just had batman in it you know i mean his, <laughs> exactly. like, like you think about like the dark knight the dark knight is basically a crime thriller is it necessarily a hundred percent like a spy thriller no but I mean, Nolan's already like gotten most of the way there. If he's going to take Bond, I would really need to know how Christopher Nolan is going to continue to keep James Bond relevant. I mean, I would say that the Daniel Craig stuff was pretty well received. It was mostly, yeah. you know, I, I I don't think it was terribly received, and I I think it would be a question of how you necessarily continue to make him relevant i think that you could get nolan to make a much more cerebral james bond film maybe with a much more Mm -hmm. cerebral james bond villain you know where kind of the exact opposite of what you said like uh just basic like shoot him up cars action you know whatever movie you know i think you'd said you could you could take like an existing ip and there's a sub question i want to pitch to you just i want to get i want a two second answer from you because we already did the one big question i can't cheat and steal i'll uh, this is Question 1A, but pick a big IP like a James Bond. If it's not James Bond, pick a big IP, whatever IP it is. Where do you want to see Christopher uh, directed by Christopher Nolan? Blank, this big IP, and he's already done superheroes, so I guess superheroes is out. Big IP, 
this movie directed by Christopher Nolan. And it's not James Bond. Not James Bond. Because, I mean, he already really wants to do that. I mean, if they asked him to do it, he would he would do it. You know, but the problem is, is I don't know if they're going to be willing to give up that much creative control to Nolan to make the James Bond movie he would want to make. Because they got their rules about James Bond movies where they have to be, they have to fulfill XYZ criteria. And Nolan doesn't play well in an environment where there's a lot of studio interference, you know? It's a cop out, but let's get him on like, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th. I mean, because you're talking cerebral, you're talking about digging into these characters' psyche. I mean, could you imagine digging into like that, the historical origins of like Freddy Krueger and what he did to those kids and like kind of, you know, really, really studying that and really spending time on that as opposed to just having okay. it be kind of a jump off point? Okay. Like it would be a different kind of quote unquote horror movie. It would, cause it would be Nolan and you, you know, he's going to, you know, he's not going to do a horror movie where it's just like a killer chases teenagers and that's it. Right. Cause it's going to be much, much more to it. There's going to be a lot more in the script. Uh, horror fans <laughs> might riot, but I'm all for it, man. I, I'd say, let's do it. I mean, he's not going to, but I can dream. So I guess that would be my quick answer. Nightmare on Elm Street. All right. I'll take it. I'll take it. I don't even I don't I even you. have an answer to the sub question, but I just I just I I kind of thought of that when I was when I was going through the other segment. But yeah, that's 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 good stuff. I know you love when I bring up horror, so I wanted to make sure I did that real quick. I keep telling you, ladies and gentlemen, he's sworn off it. Sworn off it. Here we go. Our reveal up top, early score reveal. We're gonna give you our individual scores out of ten. We will say it simultaneously. We'll show it to those that are gonna be watching on video. For Oppenheimer. Uh, here we go, Nick. Ready, set, go. Nine out of ten. Man, so so let me just let me just it, that's 18. That's 18. If you divide it in half, that's nine out of ten for the two P's. That's the two P's score. I just wanted to make sure in case you needed help with the math on that one. I, I, that one was a little easier for me, but I'm gonna write that down because I don't want to forget that. So say, what did you say? That's 18, you said? 18 out of 20? All right. Wait, get, your, sure get your calculator out. Get your calculator. Come on. Who are you well, for? Nick, I okay. Let's keep it somewhat spoiler free here for a couple minutes. And then we can kind of just start talking about whatever you want to talk about. Yeah. So with this movie, this was really, really, really close to being a 10 out of 10 film for me. And it actually might be on rewatches. I've only seen it the one time still. I saw it in IMAX, which I know you unfortunately didn't get a chance to. But no. what a fucking experience that was with the sound design and some other stuff that we'll probably talk about tonight. It trails off a little bit in the last like 30 to 45 minutes. Um, and that is where I kind of lost a point. I feel like if this movie and I. You know, people that know me personally will be like, okay, dude, we get it. But I mean, I feel like if this movie had been like two and a half hours, it probably would have been a 10 out of 10. If it had been a little bit tighter, especially in the in in the end after the Trinity test and some other stuff that we kind of get to climax there. And then it kind of becomes a courtroom drama, which I did really like that stuff. But it was just a huge shift in tone and kind of what we had kind of been following up until that point. So that's kind of where I lost a little bit from what would have been a 10 out of 10. Also, I think this is probably in Nolan's like top three for me personally. Uh, I mean, the guy, I hated Tenet. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. And I know you don't have any point of reference there because you never saw it. Tenet was such a letdown for me, and especially as a big Nolan fan. It's my least favorite film of his. 
And to see this as his next movie, man, I walked out just with such a huge grin on my face. I was just in awe the whole time at the different parts of this movie when it comes to the craft of it, like you mentioned earlier. And I can't wait to talk about a couple of the things specifically, but just it's just such a well-made movie that had so much love, care and love put into it from just a movie-making perspective, even if you don't connect with the story, which, I mean, I did as well. So I, I think Nolan returned to top, top form here. I still put Dark Knight as my number one of his, and I'm a huge fan, and I have a kind of a soft spot for the prestige. So that would mm-hmm. probably be my number two. But this is my number three as we're sitting here talking right now. I think it's Nolan's best film in over a decade. I absolutely love it. Wow. I'm, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit on the length of the film. I mean, because I'm me and you're you. But <laughs> sure. I, I really think to contextualize all of the things that he went through in the 50s when they were trying to discredit him and take away his security clearance and all of those kinds of different things when he was speaking out against the nuclear arms race. And this was also kind of leveled in with the the guilt that he felt he had and the blood that he felt he had on his hands from the creation of the bomb. I think that stuff is as important as the Trinity test itself. I mean, obviously the Trinity test itself is the centerpiece of the movie. I mean, and when the movie gets there, I mean, that is, that is some of the best movie making of this decade easily. I mean, that's it's unbelievable. Like the, the fact that if the fact that a filmmaker we all it again, I, I said it at the top, but this is historical record. We know this stuff already exists. We already know what happened. But when you can take an event that has already happened and you can have me figuratively on the edge of my seat, like as mm. you're filming it, as they're counting down, as you're doing all of this kind of different thing, because it's it's maybe it's maybe it's almost this tiny little thing of maybe as an audience member, you're wishing that it wouldn't work, even though, you know, in your heart of hearts and you know obviously from just knowing history that it inevitably does and it's led Mm -hmm. us to the world of course that we're in today and you know the threat of nuclear war and all these other kinds of different things that we have to deal with in a modern sense Mm -hmm. to to take a a factual event like that an event that we already know existed and to still make an audience just climb to the edge of their seats watching it with the, with the score ratcheting up Ludwig Göransson's score is insane Ooh. it's so good man. man so good so good can we say can we say explosively good can we say there can we say go. that can't I make like too that. many explosion puns i guess probably about that kind of stuff but like like i said to take an event like that but i i disagree with you i think that contextualized against the trinity stuff because there's this fervor and there's this excitement at least in terms of a science and physics aspect of them really wanting this test to work but as an audience member you know what it means for this test to succeed because we've already lived this. The world has already lived this history. You know what it means, but it's so exciting to see their excitement in the run-up to the test. And then, of course, the world that that then turns into, how that proliferates into the development of the hydrogen bomb and the nuclear arms race and things like that. I, I think that that juxtaposed against that is is so fascinating. And we'll talk about it later, I'm sure. But there's a line of, there, there's a line of dialogue in this movie from... Uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s Louis Strauss that is just mind-blowing. 
Just absolutely mind blowing. We'll get there when we when we open it up a little bit and we start spoiling stuff. But I mean, this is this is it, it's it, it bounces around chronologically, but I don't think it ever really gets lost. It switches between this subjective viewpoint of Oppenheimer in full color to these objective scenes in black and white. I mean, Nolan is really swinging for the fence every single time in every yeah. artistic sense with this movie, and I think he hits a home run every single time. I really, really, really do. Well, let's open it up a little bit where we can just kind of talk about whatever you want to talk about. I have a couple of things I want to get the conversation started with. But going forward, listeners, viewers, anything we say about Oppenheimer could be a spoiler for the new Christopher Nolan film. So just skip ahead or come back after you've seen the movie. Spoiler alert going forward. So, Nicholas, what's interesting that I didn't really expect necessarily with this movie and maybe I should have because I'm a fan of Dunkirk as well that that no one did. It was a biopic. But this movie really surprised me in the sense that it was a character study of J. Robert Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. And the Trinity Test and the Manhattan Project, which was really the only things I had knowledge of you know, in history, I'm just telling you, I didn't really know much else other than the Manhattan Project stuff coming into this movie that was kind of a supporting plot in the film. It was more so about him as a man and kind of his internal struggles, the morality that he was dealing with, him, you know, trying to find his way in his career as as a physicist and, uh, you know, a scientist. And we got some really cool scenes with Albert Einstein. I can't, I'm sorry, I don't have the actor that was portraying him in the film, but Tom Conti. There you go, Tom Conti. I mean, obviously, Einstein, arguably one of the most recognizable scientists in history. Easily. And those were really cool. And it just kind of struck me as like, because I'm sitting there watching it, Killian Murphy, who absolutely is going to get nominated for Academy Award and should, I mean, just <laughs> absolutely slayed this. I've seen people have done these like split screens with, with actual Oppenheimer and with Killian Murphy and their mannerisms. And I mean, obviously he kind of looks like him already. So uh, I'm watching the movie and our buddy Dan went, went with me and obviously I'm not talking to him during it, but I'm sitting there watching it after the first 20 or 30 minutes or so. And I was just going to ask you, but I, I'm kind of sitting there going, okay, this is not what I thought I was in for, but I'm okay with this. Because I, I kind of went in expecting this bombastic, like, you know, the, the poster, for example, has, you know, Oppenheimer engulfed with all these flames. And, you know, some of the trailers are like the, the ticking bomb and you're like on the edge of your seat watching the fucking trailer, which I was, by the way, when I saw it in the theater the first time. Uh, and you just kind of get that sense that this is going to be a pulse pounding kind of nail biting thriller. And it has elements of that, but it's much more of a intimate portrait of this guy now did you expect that first of all is my um comprehension do you agree with me there i do and and i mean i i I wouldn't say that it i didn't 
expected or anything like that, though. It's Nolan. When I sit down for a Christopher Nolan movie, I know one thing. Expect the unexpected. I never really know, like, how Nolan's going to frame. I mean, think about Dunkirk, how Dunkirk is depicted over one 24-hour period, but also one 24-day period and one 24-minute period. Like, how all of those different little timelines and all those kinds of things weave together in Dunkirk. Nolan, memento, like, half backwards, half forwards. And, I mean, it really, I, when I sit down for a Nolan movie, I go in to expect the unexpected. So, immediately, when it started out with, you know, scenes set in like the late fifties during Strauss's, you know, Senate confirmation hearing. I knew immediately then that Nolan was going to just take us on this kind of whirlwind ride, like through his entire life. And that he was going to use other moments of his life to kind of frame against that. Uh, So, I mean, I really, really enjoyed that. I really, really thought that that was a really, really smart decision because here's the thing. I mean, again, this is a three hour long bio. This is a three hour long, three hour long biopic mm-hmm. that has no action in it i mean it has thrilling moments i definitely agree with you i think that there are thrilling moments like i said the lead up to the trinity test is is exhilarating filmmaking it's mm-hmm. unbelievable that i was legitimately like like kind of just like sitting there with bated breath like almost almost and like i said my logical brain's like this already happened this is already a thing that already happened but it's that takes a master craftsman. And I wish I wish I understood how filmmakers did this kind of stuff. But it takes a master craftsman to be able to take something like this and film it in such a way that they can make a historical event just put you to the edge of your seat. But yeah, I mean, this is a three-hour talky drama. I think if they would have gone at it from a straightforward approach, say they just started at the beginning of his life, like the beginning of his academic career, like studying physics in Germany and meeting Heisenberg and then coming back to the States, going to California, and then eventually Manhattan Project. And I think that movie is boring. I think that movie, you would have felt this three-hour runtime and like then some. I think because they juxtapose like different scenes. And then, like I said, they take the black and white stuff, which is this, uh, this objective perspective and they inject it in here. I think that that really, really helps to, I, and, and almost in a way, and I don't know if you agree with this or not. Let me know what you think about this, but I really think almost in a way that Nolan isn't telling you as an audience member what to think about Oppenheimer necessarily. And I, I think that he's, he's giving you enough of, of, of every kind of perspective of Oppenheimer's life to where, where you're not really, you're not really going, at least I'm not coming out of this film thinking, is he, is he, is he this villain to history? Like he was to some people, is he this hero of science? Like he is to some people, is it somewhere in between and everything like that? And I think, I don't think this film is interested in guiding us one way or the other. And I think that that's really, really great because it would have been really easy to make a a very political piece out of this film. And I don't think it's I don't think it's very political at all in that right. sense. In that sense, obviously, there's a lot of politics in the film. But, yeah, what do you think of like what do you think of that? Because I I don't think that he wants you to feel any certain way or not about him. I think he wants you to draw your own conclusions based on whatever he's presenting. I agree. And I think that what speaks loudest to that point and why I agree with you is because I don't know how I feel about him after seeing the movie. I'm I'm the same way, dude. Oh, <laughs> I'm so, I'm so, 
I'm so glad. I I just I love yeah. you for even saying that because let me let me let me take that one step further. Mm-hmm. After I saw this film and reading more about Oppenheimer, reading more about the production of this film, even preparing and getting ready to sit down for this recording like i know i know i loved this movie i know my rating is 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 true and i probably on a rewatch would probably bump it up i probably would but i don't know how i feel about it right like overall like you know what i mean and let me tell you too and you know we can touch i can use the trinity test scene as, as a little bit of an example here but what what is also interesting and i thought nolan did a lot in this movie is that he put different things into the point of view of someone else and from mm-hmm. seeing it through their eyes and from their perspective. And that yep. Trinity test scene is probably the biggest example of that. Cause the way the sound is done and it takes all the sound out, right? I mean, this giant explosion, one of the biggest in the history of the world goes off and you don't hear anything. You could hear a pin drop and it's showing everybody's kind of reaction and the light glowing on their faces and just kind of how they're taking in you know, multiple months of, of the work that they put into it and seeing it as this triumphant thing for science and, you know, for the war, which is all true, especially if you're looking at it from a World War II from that era. So from a scientific perspective, you go, man, what an amazing accomplishment. Bravo. Right. But then later on in the film, other scenes will happen in the political kind of aspects that you were talking about. And you'll, you know, and he's kind of in the dark, if you will. He doesn't know what the government's doing with his quote unquote weapon or his invention. And he's kind of worried about, you know, I mean, Truman basically calls him a pussy in in one scene. (laughs) You know, and you kind of feel that way, too. You're kind of like, but like you said, we know. I mean, we know they dropped the bomb on Hiroshima and like, you know, like we know all that shit happened. But do you know what I mean? Like Nolan just really did a great job of taking those breaths where you did kind of stop and go. It was kind of like a love hate thing or a 50 50 thing where it was like, you were kind of enthralled in the accomplishment part of it and the historical significance, but you were also kind of having that morality battle within yourself, much like Oppenheimer does in the film where you're, where you're like asking yourself, well, yeah, but at at what cost? I just real quick want to point out, you know, none of this, I don't think is possible if you're watching, like to feel these emotions. I mean, if you're watching like an Oppenheimer documentary or a World War II documentary, like Killian Murphy's embattled performance in this movie absolutely grabs you and makes you have those existential questions. And not to be funny, but much like Margot Robbie does in Barbie or Ryan Gosling. I mean, you do you know, the character is dealing with those issues in real time in front of your face. I mean, Mm -hmm. I have young kids. There's that one scene where him and Emily Blunt basically decide to give their children to their neighbors so that he can, you know, focus on his life's work of, you know, creating what would eventually, you know, kill thousands of people. And, you know, that's definitely shortening. You know, that's a short version of what happens, but you get what I'm saying, how we kind of question what's important, what's real, what's good, what's bad. And we, as the audience, I feel like are kind of living that with Oppenheimer in this movie. And I want to talk a little bit more about Nolan's like point of view that he brings into the film too, because it happens in a couple other instances as well. But 
do you get what I'm saying there? I mean, I do, Killian yeah. Murphy and these kind of point of view, like put you in their shoes situation that Nolan accomplishes here is phenomenal. It really, really is. And I, and I think it also, it, it does a good job of trying to put you into the perspective of the time frame because obviously this is a period piece as it goes through the different stages of Oppenheimer's life. And I think it does a good job of kind of framing the questions that they had back in the time during the war. They were starting the nuclear program here in the United States feeling that Germany was already light years ahead in their nuclear program. And very rightfully so. I don't think anyone would probably argue, what if Hitler had the bomb? Like, what if the Nazis had been successful in detonating a nuclear bomb first and started using nuclear weapons in the Second World War? I mean, mm -hmm. I don't think there's any question in probably anybody's mind, like, how terrible that would have been for the world on the whole. Right. And, you know, I, I also think that it does a really, really good job of through Oppenheimer and, and through Killian Murphy's performance, really, of, of portraying the blood on his hands, as it were, as he says that he has that meeting with Truman. Speaking of speaking of Truman, like, can we for a moment talk about the cast for this movie and how the dude, oh the dude just straight up has Oscar winners showing up in random cameos? in this movie left right I mean, center like it's absolutely insane like how many people like show up in this movie like you've got gary oldman showing up in this movie you've got casey affleck who i thought was like persona non grata in hollywood and you've got like all these amazing amazing different actors, oscar winners showing up for random bit parts and i think honestly I, I honestly think that's uh, you want me to be part of the new Christopher Nolan movie. Yeah. What do you want me to do? You want me to mop the floors? Exactly. Fine. But, you know, I, I like I said, I, I really, really think that the film does a fantastic job of kind of framing that in that idea of, quote unquote, the blood on his hands. You know, mm -hmm. just the contemporary kind of idea of. It was a was it a necessary evil like and and that the the film asks of the audience and I think the film asks of itself some really really big questions. Did they have to develop the bomb? Like, did they have no choice? Was it a necessary evil because we had to get the bomb before Hitler got the bomb? Then, when they're still developing the bomb, kind of it happens in the film. They question whether or not they still really need to develop the bomb, but then they start having those conversations about like a mainland invasion of Japan, which Japan was determined to fight down, like literally to the last man, woman and a child. And it would have cost the lives of how many more Japanese people, let alone uh, American troops that were going in there. And so there's that argument to be made as well about whether or not the bomb was necessary to be dropped in that sense too. A lesser filmmaker, I think, and lesser performances and a lesser treatment of this subject matter could have not as handled it as deftly as Nolan has. But I think that it's it's all handled with such with such weight. And I and I really think that Nolan never once doesn't understand the pressure on him, maybe from himself, maybe from his peers, maybe from the audience, whomever to depict these events with the weight and gravity and seriousness. And it's funny to talk about weight and gravity and things like that in a movie about nuclear weapons, but <laughs> the film it's, it's explicitly evident in the film that he was extremely aware of all of that, like of the, 
th- this this literally changed the world. It it literally mm-hmm. changed the world. And yep. I think that Nolan shot every single frame of this movie knowing it. And think about too the science of it and the discovery part of it with Oppenheimer and uh, Josh Hartnett's character and all the other Benny Safdie and all the other scientists that he's working with, even on the college campuses and stuff well before he even gets to Los Alamos, but obviously there too on the compound. But just think of that, like the excitement of kind of learning what we can do in the world, not even taking the political or the wartime uh, storyline into account, but just more so the excitement of being a scientist at that time. And, you know, the studying of the atoms and what we can do with the chain reactions and, you know, none of this shit was possible. I mean, they're basically like talking about like what stars do in space <laughs> in the forties. And they're like essentially recreating it in this bomb. I mean, it's like, it, it really is baffling to, I mean, I'm dumb anyway, but even if I was smart, I mean, it's baffling to really think about kind of discovering that with a group of people in the forties and not having the technology that we have today on your side. So that part too you can take out of the political narrative and you can take out of the world war two narrative and kind of see it for what that is as well. A couple of things I wanted to mention before we get close to wrapping up too. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about some of the other performances in the film. We already mentioned Killian Murphy, but Emily Blunt wasn't in it as much as I wanted her to be as Kitty, his wife, but another point of view shot that Nolan really throws in our face as the audience and kind of as a wake up for us as anybody that may have been dozing at the time. When, you know, they're, ha- they're in the interrogation room and he's doing the thing for his um, security clearance. He's having the hearing there. And we see Florence Pugh basically having sex with him in the chair while he's being questioned. It's obviously a vision or whatever. And my interpretation is that's what she sees when she thinks of her husband cheating on her uh, with her. And it was just a really kind of a crazy scene. But like I said, it was it was Nolan using that point of view perspective so we can sympathize with another character in the movie. You know, that wasn't Oppenheimer in this case. It was his wife, Kitty. And then we also see it a little bit from Florence Pugh's character in the hotel room when she essentially I believe she she kills herself. Right, Nick? I was thinking I the well history says one thing but history, in the movie history says that she killed herself but th- there okay. is still there, there there's like a theory that she that she was killed because of her was ties killed. to the communist okay. party and things like that but you know the movie kind of leaves it open-ended kind of but in the movie it was kind of painted like she kind of killed herself and he was obviously yeah, yeah. devastated by it but i know that some other people i won't call them conspiracy theorists or whatever because like you said we don't know but I know some other people think that he killed her or that the government had her killed or like whatever. So yeah. it's just one of those things where we just may never know. Yeah. Robert Downey Jr. is going to win the Oscar. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you it's, it's July of 2023. They won't even announce the nominations till January of next year. I mean, I think Gosling and Barbie ironically released on the same weekend has a good shot at a nomination as well. But what Robert Downey Jr. did in this movie as Strauss, especially in that last act of the film. Yeah. Let me put you this way. Imagine being like a local band in New York, Nick, and you have to go on stage after Metallica. (laughs) 
Okay. I mean, we have the Trinity test, the fucking bomb, the amazing cinematography, sound, everything we've been talking about. And then we have essentially an hour of this kind of courtroom drama, frankly, being led by RDJ most of the time. He's in a lot of those scenes Mm -hmm. in the last act of the film. And absolutely, it just kept me engaged. It was so riveting. He kind of has this turn from this kind of sympathetic, kind of innocent guy to almost like a villain by the end of the movie where he's really unsavory. Uh, just kind of, you know, mixed up in the Washington game. And I just thought that was just a just all around. I think he's going to win the Oscar. I really do. Like, I feel like that's going to be a performance that's going to go down as one of the best in his career. Yeah, f- fantastic performance. I mean, you couldn't I-, I could not have said it any better than you just said it. Uh, he really, really in in all of those black and white scenes. Again, that's like this objective perspective. That's everybody else's opinion of Oppenheimer and their view on like the different events and things like that that are going on in this film. I love that we get to see some of those juxtaposed against his viewpoint, like Oppenheimer's viewpoint of those events as well, like the dinner that they have where they're talking about the development of the super or the hydrogen bomb, as it were. I, I really love that. And, and yeah, Downey got to be up there in the conversation i really really would think he's absolutely phenomenal i also think jason clark and i couldn't place him for whatever reason for the longest time but i jason clark um i really think shines in those interrogation scenes as rob as like the lead interrogator he's absolutely fantastic how about that scene he has with emily blunt though when she's giving it back to him that's great too she's like trying to correct his grammar or whatever that was fucking like if she gets nominated that'll be her clip Emily Blunt's yeah. fantastic here. Florence Pugh is uh, unbelievably amazing in this film. Uh, I really love just, I mean, it's it's Florence Pugh. I mean, enough said. I mean, yeah. uh, and you've got so many different little small performances in here from, like I said, you've got like Casey Affleck's in like one scene, but Casey Affleck is, he's Casey Affleck. You've got Gary Oldman as Truman in literally one scene. Yeah. Rami Malek. Rami Malek is basically a background player. Like he's just like, if you didn't know it was Rami Malek, like who won an Oscar for the travesty of a queen biopic that was Bohemian Rhapsody, you know, I mean, if you didn't know anything about Rami Malek, you just assume that was just some random bit player, but that that dude's an Oscar winner. That's what I'm saying Uh about this movie. Like you've got Oscar winners playing bit parts and cameos, like glorified cameos in this thing. That's remarkable. Like, that's unbelievably remarkable, but that's the caliber of talent that Nolan attracts when he is creating films like this. That's the caliber of people who want to work for Christopher Nolan. And I think that that helps to carry all of this material through with the weight and seriousness that it deserves as well. I really do. Just, I mean, fascinating up and down across the board. Like I said, it's it's amazing. Alden Ehrenreich, too, as Strauss's aide. So good. Yeah. So good, man. So good. Like just kind of like the little, just the little bites the like the little biting dialogue that he kind of has back with him. He's kind of realizing because he's at this guy's side, Strauss's side the whole time. And he's kind of realizing in real time, this guy's a prick. Yeah. Yeah. That Strauss really isn't, isn't the dude that he, that he claims to be. I love that one line he has where he's like, he's like, maybe they're interested in the truth. And then like there's a beat like Nolan just lets a beat hang there and then he comes back with their their version of the truth or whatever whatever he follows it up with but just just lets that right. beat hang there long enough and then it like cuts back to Strauss and back to him that little exchange is so perfect 
I agree. Well, we're getting ready to wrap up, you know, just final thoughts real quick. And then I'll just want to, you know, leave it open to you in case there's anything else you might want to discuss. But, you know, for me, it was it, it had it mirrored a movie called JFK that Oliver Stone did in the 90s, which was a movie that I loved. It did a lot of that where it went back to black and white or it showed news footage. Uh, and then it would have the filmmaking on display that would kind of play out the assassination and, and whatever. It had those kind of like similar where it was weaving in between the stories. And I love JFK. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. So I kind of uh, love the similarities there. And we've talked about the cinematography, uh, the sound design, another another pretty guaranteed Oscar nomination for sound for this movie, especially coming off of Tenet, which... And I didn't come here to bash Tenet tonight, but. But you're going to do it anyway. <laughs> the sound was not good. I'm just going to tell you, especially in comparison to a movie like this. I couldn't hear the dialogue. It was it was almost staticky at times. Like it was just not good. Well, this is a criticism of a lot of Nolan's films in more recent yeah. history. I mean, think about Bane's voice in The Dark Knight Rises. Yeah. Think about, like, I just rewatched Interstellar because I was kind of in Nolan mode and I'd been seeing a lot of Interstellar, like, reels on Instagram. So I wanted to revisit it. I only watched it once in the theater in IMAX when I first saw it. And I didn't really love it then and rewatching it, I didn't really love it again. Matthew McConaughey is basically, like, whisper mumbling all of his dialogue for some yeah, reason. Yeah, that's true. And then Zimmer's yeah. score, like, that score is iconic it's incredible it's so good but it's also drowns everything out in the film i think here i think there's parts of this where Gorenson's score really overwhelms it the sound design the, the the sound effects like the sparking and all those different little elements that nolan's going for but i think it's done here with a very intentional design it's 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 conveying through auditory means the the absolute and i mean we we all know how powerful a nuclear weapon is. We don't need to have it spelled out for us how powerful a nuclear weapon is, but I think little touches like that drive it home even further without overtly stating it. Nolan could basically have had these characters say, boy, bombs be bad, yo, the whole time. <laughs> but instead he uses the score and he uses the sound design to punch up those different elements. I mean, think about like the speech that he's giving about the bomb after the Trinity test, like after, I think it's after Hiroshima. And he's given that little speech at Los Alamos and like the sound kind of fades out and it just gets drowned out by the score, drowned out by the sound effects, the, the sound design, like you said. How perfect is that? Like how utterly and amazingly perfect is that? Like the, the absolute power that this bomb has become, it completely eclipses anything and everything that Oppenheimer saying in the moment. You know, I think seeing this once or maybe a couple more times, it could be a 10 out of 10. No one for me. I need much to see like this the, again. I, I much like the Dark Knight is. But man, I wish I, I'm going to try to make the time to hump it up to Syracuse to see this in IMAX. But man, it's going to be tough if I can have if I have the time. It was uh, it's an ethereal experience, man. It was like one, it's definitely one of those hairs standing up on your neck and arms situations, especially during the Trinity test scene and you know, some other sound stuff that he'll kind of throw in like, cause he'll do those quick cuts to just like really loud imagery. And then it'll go back to like the movie, you know, and he mm -hmm. does that a lot and it really stands out in IMAX. One thing I wanted to make sure we talk about is I think uh, aside from maybe, and I haven't really, really thought about this yet, but aside from maybe inception, this might be the best ending to any Christopher Nolan film too, because Oppenheimer's going out there on the side of the pond or whatever beautiful setting and he's talking to einstein one of the greatest minds in the history of the world 
And essentially, you know, he tells Einstein, like, you know, we were trying to figure out, you know, if there's a chain reaction to, you know, to keep the bomb to do its thing. And, you know, I asked you if you think this chain reaction is going to continue basically until the world ends. And Einstein was like, what did you guys figure out? And I don't remember the exact verbiage, but Oppenheimer says, I think we did it. And then it kind of shows this kind of, you know, futuresque image of the earth being engulfed by Oppenheimer's creation and essentially the world ending. And he's sitting there staring at, at the pond and realizing like what we did here is going to end the world. And he's faced with that morality battle that he's been having the whole movie, just staring at us and staring at, you know, fade to black for the film. And then Einstein's leaving going, well, we're fucked. (laughs) I mean, basically what they did We're this is it. Like, I don't know if it's going to be tomorrow. I don't know if it's going to be 10 years from now or a hundred years from now, but this is it, you know, because he knows the science of it and he knows what, how powerful it is. And I just felt that the weight of that was really, was done really, really well to where even a commoner as myself felt the gravity of it. You know, like I really felt how important and impactful uh, the Manhattan Project and the developing of the bomb and everything that Oppenheimer did in his career. Yeah, I felt how important it essentially is and is going to be forever. It's the perfect nail to to seal home the 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 entire package of this film basically because the film begins like early on in the film like we see that scene from Strauss's perspective in black and white where he's watching the two of them at the pond and he can't hear what's being said and he presumes that Einstein like Oppenheimer said something to Einstein to sour him on him and Einstein doesn't even really regard Strauss when he walks past him and this is like a huge point of contention like all through the film for Strauss like holding this grudge almost against Oppenheimer I mean there was obviously the Senate hearing where he made him look foolish uh, about the radioactive isotopes and all those kinds of different things but I really really think it's it's beautiful to kind of revisit that moment and it's really just kind of this somber take on the nuclear genie being let out of the bottle. Like, will it lead to the end of the world? The gravity of it, and to kind of circle back to that word, I've said that so many times in this review, I think, but the gravity of knowing that you let that (laughs) nuclear genie out of the bottle, and at least in his mind, he believes that he has started that chain reaction that will inevitably lead to the destruction of the world. Now it didn't happen instantaneously. Like, you know, they had maybe thought that it could like maybe they, when they were initially theorizing about the bomb before the the Trinity test had ever even occurred. But I really, really, I really, really love that idea. And I, and I I really, really did love the ending of this movie because if nothing else, like it's the kind of ending that really think about cinematic gut punches yeah and the as the final credits start to roll like literally as the final scene occurs just cinematic gut punches and then you as an audience member are left to kind of sit there and and think about 
our own world, like the things going on in our world right now, like the, I mean, obviously Russia, Ukraine, like that whole thing and Putin over there with his saber rattling saying he'll nuke anybody that tries to mess with him or any of these different things. So, I mean, the threat of the threat of nuclear war is still something that's very much a part of the world that we, that we live in. And it's, it's, it's so, it's so darkly sobering in, in a way where it's just, it's one of those kind of endings that just like brings an audience to just, just absolute dead silence. Like I said, it's a cinematic gut punch, you know, it's the kind of movie where it ends and you, you just sit there and you just go, you know, you just collect your thoughts. I mean, you're probably thinking about your critique of the film, but you're also kind of thinking about, I mean, at least, from my perspective, and I don't think Dan had a vast knowledge of Oppenheimer either. We talked a li- about it a little bit afterwards, but at least for me personally and the folks that I saw it with, like I didn't realize how deep it went with this guy. Like I just never studied it or it never came to me in school or whatever. So I just didn't know, you know, I definitely didn't know what he was dealing with on like a personal level. Um, so to see that kind of played out was a moment that, you know, as a moviegoer, I won't forget anytime soon. I mean, no one really did it where he really got to me yeah. as, as an audience member. And it's a special, special thing when a filmmaker can do that. And of course, you know, testament to Killian Murphy and to a lot of the other performances in the film too. I mean, if the actor's not pulling it off, it's not going to work, but everything worked here everything came together and it's easily one of my favorite movies of the year, probably only second to maybe past lives for me. Uh, maybe third, I'd have to think about it, but yeah, it's definitely up there for me. Easily one of the best movies of the year. And like I said, one of the best that no one has done in a long, long time. Nick, we're going to shout out the fans online here in a second, man. You got anything you want to say in wrapping up about Oppenheimer two nines on Oppenheimer nine for me, nine from you. I mean, I mentioned it quite a while ago in the review but just to let it just to let it linger there in the air between us even strauss has a line where he says that oppenheimer got exactly what he wanted he got the credit for trinity but not the credit for hiroshima and nagasaki and when i think about that like even if you think about it from a historical context that's true we think of oppenheimer as the man who you know directed the Manhattan project and obviously the Trinity test, but we don't, we don't directly correlate those things in our head. We correlate it to Truman really. Cause I mean, they have that sequence in the oval office where Truman says, you know, they don't remember who made the bomb. They remember who used it. Exactly. You know, but I yeah, just, the U S did it. Yeah. There's, there's just those, those brilliant gut punches in there where it's like, he has blood on his hands but you also, as an audience member and kind of looking at it from that perspective as well, you're like, but maybe you should too, you know? Right. And, you know, again, amazing performance by Murphy that helps pull this off. But he, there's also that point in the movie after everything's successful with the testing and the bombs on its way and, you know, that it's able to be used. It's live, if you will, where he wants to be a part of that side of it. Like he wants to go with Matt Damon's character to like, be a part of the decision-making process uh, because that was his baby. And I, I think he had that detachment from reality where he thought that he could interject scientific minds, if you will, into the political decisions that they were going through in wartime. And that's just not believable. 
So Strauss was right because you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. I never in prior to seeing this movie would have associated J. Robert Oppenheimer with the bombing of Hiroshima. Aside from just knowing that he was involved in the Manhattan Project, but I would have yeah. never, do you know what I mean? Like, yes, the blood on his, is on his hands. Yes, I'm sure he had an enormous amount of guilt, et cetera. But I don't think the American public was pushing any of that on him. Yeah. But it's an interesting thing how the two things are kind of separate, but they're also right in line and right parallel with each other. So yeah. fascinating. And it's fascinating the way it played out in the movie as well. All right. Um, we wrap up every episode by heading over to the comments section, Nick. We're going to see the fans threw us some questions, and they're somewhat related to Nolan or App- Oppenheimer, et cetera. So, Nick, if you want to pull them up over there. Yep. Uh, I've got one picked out. And as always, we answered a lot of these. <laughs> and there's some there's some kind of juvenile ones that I'm tempted to uh, answer about Florence Pugh and you know, nudity, but I won't, I'll keep it, I'll keep it professional tonight. Do you have a question picked out over there? I do. All right, go for it, man. So the question I picked was Lindsay Dunn and she said, what do you think is important in telling a good biopic and did Oppenheimer meet those qualities? And I think, I don't know about you, G, but I I really, really think that the most important thing is kind of especially with a biopic like this, like really embedding you in the historical framework of it. And I really feel like this did succeed in that. I feel like I'm there. Like, I feel like I'm in the thirties, forties, fifties, like during those contextual times when this thing was happening. And that's a testament to not just Nolan, but that's a testament to costume designers to, you know, set designers, all those kinds of different things. And I think especially kind of maybe to take that the one step further to immerse you in that the the subject's life whatever whatever that is to immerse you in the subject's life and i think we can very easily say where well, we were immersed in oppenheimer's life in this film i really really think we were yeah i agree i agree. immersion yeah. is the very simple answer to that question Lindsay. <laughs> but thank you so much for the question thank you Lindsay. and i'm going to use i didn't mean to do this but i think it's two weeks in a row that i'm using jason nergevert but he's got a question and i wanted to shine a light on on this actor, which we kind of mentioned a couple times tonight, but we haven't really talked in depth about. But he just says, where does it rank for Josh Hartnett performances? I thought Josh Hartnett was so fucking good in this movie that I'm going to go ahead and tell you this is his best performance, at least supporting performance of his career. And Josh Hartnett has been around for a while. The only other movies I would maybe throw in there, but they're personally like awesome to me. I don't know if, you know, a film aficionado or yourself would watch these movies and go, man, Josh Hartner is really turning in something here. But I love him in uh, this movie called 30 Days of Night, which is like a vampire. Good, story. good flick. Good flick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was really good in that. And I, I just have a soft spot for him and his jagged haircut in H2O, Halloween H2O. <laughs> But aside from those just like personal loves, I honestly feel like, and I'm not even joking, I think this might be the best acting he's done in his career. What do you think about Hartnett in this movie? Well, is he good in the film? Yes. I did not even recognize him. I knew I knew who it was watching it. Every time he was on screen, I'm like, who is that? God, I know who that is. I can't tell who that is. Oh, wow. 
And and then like I really did love his performance. I think it's a great performance, but I didn't realize it was Josh Hartnett until after I left the theater and after I was oh, reading wow. more stuff about Oppenheimer online. And then I was like, wait, Josh Hartnett's in this? And then it immediately clicked in my brain. It was like, that's where I recognize that guy from. You ever have that happen when you're watching a movie? Like you just you can't place somebody? Yeah, and he's actually one of those actors that happens with quite a bit. Like, because he's in kind of these. Well, he disappeared for a long time, too. Like, he hasn't mm-hmm. been, like, prominent in a very long time. So I haven't seen him in anything in ages. And not only this, which I loved him in Oppenheimer, but he was also in an episode of Black Mirror that just came out last month. And it was a really, really good episode. And he was fucking killer in that, too. So I'm hoping we're in a Josh Hartnett renaissance, Nerdgevert. So stay tuned for that. Hartnettissance? I'm looking at his IMDb right now and I'm trying to see like he's just been doing a lot of like TV stuff and it looks like a lot of smaller movie work like it's not like he hasn't been working like I just haven't seen him in anything in ages. Well, that is our discussion on Oppenheimer, one of my favorite films of the year. I saw it almost two weeks ago. I've been dying to talk about it. Now I can put my rating on Letterboxd that Nick and I have had a chance to discuss it. But we both gave it a 9, so cumulatively it is a 9 out of 10 from the P's on Oppenheimer. Great, great film. If you guys can stomach the runtime, it's three hours, and kind of like what we broke down tonight, it is definitely a biopic story about the man, J. Robert Oppenheimer. Then give it a go, especially while it's in theaters, see it on the biggest screen that you can. Next week on the P's, I am making Nick watch a horror film. It is a horror movie that I also have not seen. It's brand new called Talk to Me, a new indie A24 horror movie that I'm extremely excited about. I am seeing it on Tuesday, and then we'll be discussing it next week. Uh, I had to mute the hashtag on Twitter, Nick, because everybody's been talking about it. And I was like, you know what? Let me let's go ahead and cut this out now before I see a bunch of reviews and everything. So I haven't seen a lot on it aside from seeing the trailer and a couple of little blurbs last week. But I'm excited to see Talk To Me. And we're also going to do our very first roulette wheel spin. That's right. Now, Nick, why don't you explain to everyone that might want to get in on the action there what that's all about? We're going to spin the roulette wheel, G. So that means you get a pick. I get a pick. And the patrons get a pick, which means they're going to have to agree on something if they win. We're going to spin that roulette wheel. And then whosoever name it lands on, they are going to have the controlling pick for that episode and we're going to be doing that periodically like if there's something we don't want to review if we're just bored with whatever's coming out in theaters maybe we just want to do something special because like an anniversary of something's coming up or what i don't know we're, we'll, we'll think of different fun uses for the roulette wheel but it's a fun mm-hmm. way for you to get involved if you're signed up over on the patreon if you're not join up over there because you can also get all sorts of of bonus content featuring this beautiful bearded gentleman right here on the screen with me audio audience he's got a big beard you know what he looks like he's gerald he looks like <laughs> he'd look like this if he was coming out of a dude's chest there you go you know there you um, go. But yeah, yeah, we're going to spin the roulette wheel. It's going to be super exciting. And I'm really I'm really loving the idea of bringing uh, an element of randomness to it because it can be pretty much yeah. anything. So I'm, I'm really, really excited to see what uh, what happens. Any movie you want us to see and review on the show. And like Nick said, our Patreon information is in the show notes every week. So if you want to join up over there for as little as one dollar, you can get in on the action and then. Like Nick said, if it if the wheel lands on the patrons, then we're going to be watching one of those patron movies, and we will do it, like you said, periodically. It won't be yep. you know once in a blue moon thing. It'll be it'll be quite a bit because it's not every week we're going to be able to get out to see new flicks. But we are seeing Talk to Me, 
Are you are you excited? When's when's the last horror movie you saw, Nick? What was the last? Oh, horror God, I have, I don't even know. Yeah, I couldn't even yeah. tell you. I don't. I don't get ready, know. buddy. I never. I'm excited. You're welcome in advance. Seek out horror movies unless the only ones I actively ever sought out. Although I still haven't seen what was it called? Spiral the the new Saw movie with Chris no, Rock. I never saw, saw X it. trailer came out yesterday. I didn't I didn't watch that either because I mm-hmm. I'm just I I don't know like I always loved those Saw movies like I always loved going back to them and watching them because I would like the psychological elements of them and then it kind of just became a hate watch thing whenever Costas <laughs> Mandalore showed up in them because sure holy, yeah. what what worst acting performances like yeah. across the board every single time he shows up in those movies so I don't know I'm intrigued for that when it comes out in October but as far as the last one I saw I could not tell you do me a favor it's the only thing i'm gonna ask probably for the rest of the run of the show skip the movie and don't see it good god just go into this movie this week when you go see it with an open mind i mean i always do i always do all right that's all i'm asking i am not ladies and gentlemen quote a horror guy okay i it's not my genre I, I, I really, here. really, I really, really have a strong disdain for horror movie tropes. I just yep. don't feel like the characters in them act like real people in any sense of the word. And it really rubs me the wrong way when I see those kinds of things on film. So it takes a lot for a horror movie to make me love it. That's not to say that I don't love some horror movies. Like, I really, really love, like I said, the the first, say, probably three Saw movies, I think. I really, really loved the It movies, like the, the new It reboot mm-hmm. that came around, what, 20, whatever yeah, that was. Yeah, those were cool because they were like coming-of-age films with like a horror story going on. So yeah, th- those yeah. Were cool. I mean, I agree. it's not to say that a horror movie is automatically going to be a failing grade in my book. Book, but it's gonna have to work hard to not not trigger some failing great action for me it's gonna it, it takes it takes up like gerald really loves like hereditary and stuff i don't get it at yeah. all i think it's, it's i think it's perfectly fine it gets a it gets yeah. a copyright dan brennick it's fine remember that you time know. i sent you the dvd copy of that i do i do god damn um, all right. I love you, Nick. I will uh, see you next week. And the movie is talk to me and you'll be talking to me. So it'll be super meta and, and we'll we'll cover it. Thank you guys for tuning in to our Oppenheimer episode. And uh, we will see you next week for talk to me. Nick, I'll see Take you. Take good brother. care of yourselves. And I gave you homework last week to just find one good mm-hmm. thing. One good win. One win that you could pull out and, and celebrate during the week. So I'm not going to give you homework this week, but just. You know, take good care of yourself. If you've been being unkind to yourself lately and take it from someone who has been being unkind to himself lately, you know, find a reason to be kind to yourself this week. Find one reason to to, to be kind to yourself. If you start framing your life and if you start framing things in your life with a positive mindset and really start kind of talking about yourself in a positive way, it can really reframe your perspective of your own life. And that's advice that I'm giving now because it's advice that I more than anyone else really need to follow right now as well. So take good care of yourselves. Please believe in yourself and be kind to yourself. All right, Jay Nicholas Haskins. I'll see you next week, buddy.